right-hander's pitch. A swing and a high fly. Deep left center field. It is gone. Hello, New York. Oscar Gonzalez sends the Guardians to the division series. A mob scene at home plate. A towering solo homer to left center to end this marathon incredible playoff game. Cleveland walks it off. A 1-0 win in 15 innings today. And this place went bonkers. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. My name is Mike Petriello. I'm a writer and researcher at MLB.com. Joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. Today is Monday. That's right, Monday, October 10, 2022. And if you tuned into the Ballpark Dimensions feed expecting to hear the usual Sarah and Mandy show, well, we flipped things around a little bit this week because Mandy Bell's day job is to cover the Cleveland Guardians, who, as you may not know, are going to play a postseason game. So Sarah and Mandy will be back later this week. Matt and I will take advantage of the Monday day off to recap the wild card a little bit and get into the upcoming division series. Uh, Matt, before we get into kind of any of these four wild card series we just had, um, I, I will admit I was a little a- apprehensive about the new postseason format. Like there are things I didn't like about it and still kind of don't, but that was a really good weekend of baseball. <laughs> like, I, let me set aside Toronto Blue Jays fans because they may not have enjoyed it so much. Uh, but just as far as like being a baseball fan, that was a lot of fun. Totally. And I think one thing that's really cool about the format, and I understand, you know, some of the criticisms about, you know, again, it's short series always, you know, random stuff happens. One thing I like about the three games in three days is it actually more closely mimics the regular season where you have to use three starting pitchers, their risk rewards to using your bullpens and how you use your relievers in game one and two. They're probably not going to be available in all three games. And if they are, they might be compromised in game three. So there's definitely a lot of like what we've seen in recent postseasons with all the off the off days is managers have gotten really good at kind of weaponizing the off days to make basically make sure that their best pitchers pitch, you know, eighty percent of the innings, and it's a lot harder to do that with three games in three days potentially. Um, although we only had one that went three games, but um, it definitely changes the way you manage and makes it more like the regular season, which I like. Combine that with like the intensity of these, you know, being playoff games. That part was cool. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. We'll get back to this in a little bit, but in the uh, upcoming division series, there are different travel day schedules for the AL and NL, which I think is going to have some interesting strategic ramifications. But so far as the wildcard games go, I kind of wanted to start with Cleveland and Tampa Bay. Uh, Cleveland won. I mean, if you could have predicted what would have happened in this series, you would say excellent starting pitching, excellent relief pitching. And man, I don't really feel good about either of those lineups. And man, did that ever happen? Cleveland scored four total runs, (laughs) all on home runs as you'd expect from the Cleveland Guardians. Here is their triple slash line in a series that, again, they won. They hit 171 with a 222 on base and a 250 slugging percentage. And maybe most surprisingly, and this is a huge credit to Tampa Bay's pitching, uh, the Guardians struck out 32% of the time after a regular season where they struck out, I don't remember, 18% of the time or something like that. And as I was watching uh, the 15-inning the game, you know, at first it was like really interesting and compelling baseball there is that sequence where you know glasnow comes out pete fairbanks comes in he's been great his first pitch is like 10 feet high his fastball is down four miles an hour like it's clear that he was hurt and he did leave injured and uh then jason adam comes in bases loaded nobody outs jose ramirez up and he gets out of it 
and then there's nine more innings of baseball. And there's a certain point where I was like, is this fun? Is this cool? Or have we like crossed back over to, oh no, no, no one's ever going to score in this game. It was, I mean, it, it basically was basically the lived up to the criticism you heard of a lot of people like myself who like the runner on second rule, which is a lot of time extra inning baseball is just a bunch of dudes trying to hit solo home runs and you end up with like a slog. And this was it brought to the extreme because you had really good bullpens and teams that can't really hit home runs. <laughs> so I, it was, I mean, it was exciting in the sense that it went extra innings and there was a version of elimination, but there was, it wasn't even like there were runners on base. There was no, like, there was hardly any runners in scoring position the entire game. There just wasn't even that much. The, the Jose Ramirez backhanded play in extra innings to save a run was like the drama in extra innings until the Gonzalez home run. Uh, but like, otherwise, there was basically no base runners. It was, it was deeply funny to me that um, Corey Kluber ended up coming in to be the guy on the mound. But since you brought up the extra innings rule, I, I would like to point out that um, I'm very happy it was not there for this game, right? And like, it's a, it's a playoff game. I want them to just go and play as long as they can and win. But it, it made me more pleased that it does happen in the regular season. Because I don't necessarily want to see this game in July, you know, or August. But in October, it was super compelling baseball. That's at least the way I felt about it. I was listening to the, the, the one, of, one of the radio broadcasts, and they were talking about it. And they were like, it is a little weird to me, like, how they, it's like, how can you have different rules for the regular season and the postseason? It's like, lots of sports do this. Have you ever watched hockey? Like, this is, this, I think, <laughs> this is, I mean, this is not a, it's, I think it, I mean, not that it's logical, but it's not crazy. No, I, I mean, like you kind of just alluded to. It may not be a different rule, but baseball is played very differently in the postseason, just the way pitchers are used. Like, it doesn't resemble, oh, it's our fifth starter on the back end of a 10-day road trip. Like, that's that's just the way it works. Um, the game last night, I, I guess as I wrote our document here, I listed these series just randomly with no particular order. So that's now we're going to stick with it. Um, Padres-Mets, the only one that went three games. And I got to say, the 25 or so minutes after Buck Walter came out to get Joe Musgrove checked. Maybe the most entertaining 25 minutes I've seen on social media in the last 10 years. Like, all of the ear jokes, and credit to the New York Daily News for having a good ear pun, and the New York Post totally biffed it. They did not have any good ear puns. Um, but I, So after the game, AJ Casavell, our Padres beat writer, is in the clubhouse, and uh, Manny Machado yells, I got your sticky stuff right here, and he sprays Joe Musgrove from head to toe with champagne. <laughs> which is incredibly funny to me. Um, I think Buck Showalter was either A, fed bad information or just engaging in gamesmanship because Joe Musgrove was absolutely killing the Padres. If you look at the numbers, the spin rate was up, but velocity was also up. That's kind of what's expected. I think that's a hard concept for a lot of people to grasp. I don't mind Showalter trying to throw a guy off his game. A little underhanded. Eh, it didn't end up mattering because Joe Musgrove was fantastic and the Mets, who we've been saying all year, didn't have enough power didn't have enough power. I mean, I've been talking of Joe Musgrove on this podcast all year, and I credit Eno Saris for kind of bringing him to my full attention in the preseason when he did his, like, stuff score on The Athletic, and he had Musgrove, like, number 10 in baseball. And I was like, oh, I don't think I noticed this. And then I became way more of a Joe Musgrove observer over the course of the season. He was fantastic. So it didn't surprise me um, that he was so good last night, especially with the Mets offense, as you alluded to disappearing at times this year, not having that kind of power hitter. It's a little misleading, right? Because if you look at weighted runs created plus, the Mets offense was third in baseball this year, but it was clear there was a weakness. And it was the fact that they don't, like they need to string together hits and against better pitchers. It's it's really, really hard to do that. As far as the Showalter thing, I thought it was a little lame. 
You know, it's not really like, but like, I get why he did it. I mean, even before he did it, like in like the second inning, I had a, I had someone text me being like, "What's what's up with Musgrove's ear?" Like it it looked weird. Like I'm I'm not a, like it looked it looked shiny, but like I don't think anything was amiss. As you said, nothing seemed to, seemed weird on spin rate relative velocity. He's a very good pitcher. Shut down a team that has shown that it could be shut down uh, somewhat regularly. So that's I mean that's I think that's to me that's the that's the short answer. I really enjoy that we work in and um, are dedicated to a sport where you can have one man essentially caressing another man's ears on national television. And it like, totally made sense in the flow of the game <laughs> if you were watching. The, the inability of the Mets to score any runs last night sort of robbed us of a, a really interesting strategic subplot I wanted to see, which was what would the effects of the Game 2 usage of Edwin Diaz be on Game 3. It ended up not mattering aside from like the world's saddest Timmy Trumpets intro <laughs> at that point. Um, but I didn't have a problem in game two that they brought him in in the seventh inning. Like, was it a little bit of an overcorrection from Buck Showalter not bringing in Zach Burton six years ago? Maybe. I, I didn't like it because it was against the, uh, what, the 8-9-1 of the lineup. That, that was, bring him in in the seventh, that's fine if it's like the high leverage spots. But as good as Trent Grisham was, it, he's not like a markedly different guy now. Yeah, no, that that's what was weird to me. I totally, I, I, it was obvious he should have brought him in to face Soto and Machado, which theoretically should have been the eighth inning, or maybe with two outs in the seventh, depending on what the what the Padres had done otherwise. But that's kind of how the, the postseason messes with you, right? Like Trent Grisham, Grisham hits a couple home runs, and suddenly you're like, oh my goodness, I, I got to manage around this guy. And like, it, it really felt like <laughs> they were managing because they were scared of Trent Grisham, which. Hey, I guess recent, you know, recency bias and all that, but like, really? That's what we're doing? And part of me thought it might be because he had used Seth Lugo the night before, and Seth Lugo is his best righty against lefties, and he didn't have him. So it was like, but then he ended up using Lugo to close the game, and then again in game three, um, that I thought it was a little, it was a little strange. I understood wanting to get him in there for Machado and Soto, but yeah, bring him in for the bottom lineup. It ended up not mattering because the Mets rallied and all that, but like. I'm, I agree with you. It would have been interesting to see to see last night how it played out, but it ended up being moot. Well, and especially not even just because he brought him in in the seventh, but because the Mets scored a bunch of runs, and Diaz ended up sitting around for like what forty-seven minutes or whatever it was. Like that was that was the part where it's like, oh, they scored a ton of runs. Bring in I don't know Drew Smith, and he didn't, and it was Diaz, and that, that was when everybody really got set off. I don't know. I mean, Adovino almost blew the game and sort of justified justified his his uh, his, his caution there. Uh, I have two more. I have two more Mets points I want to make here. Uh, the Mets won 102 and 63 this year. This is not a failed year. This is the way I look at it. Like the Mets had a very good year. The fact that they lost two out of three to a good team, I mean, it's a reflection of the fact their aces didn't pitch that well. I think more than anything. Also, when are we going to talk about the fact that Buck Showalter has 20 non-strike years as manager and has yet to win his first LCS game? That that's a subplot nobody ever talks about. It's 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 weird. Um, and it's um, it's sort of too bad for him because he's he's turned into like sort of a nice like uh, character of the game. I feel like he said he's shown a lot. Like there's something about him that's you know he has this like this charm that I think is a, it kind of I think he's probably always had it, but I think because now that he's been around a while, he kind of. Uh, but yeah, it's. I agree with every, I agree with everything you said. I mean, two out of three games, like the Mets, you know, yeah, they home field advantage, but it's going to happen. I mean, at the best case scenario, they had what like a. 55% chance to win the series, like which means they don't win it 45% of the time. 
Right. No, uh, to, to your point about Buck, one of my favorite like, bits throughout the regular season and, and even into the playoffs is whenever they had the ESPN Sunday night game, uh, both managers would get like a short, you know, two question Q&A in game with Buster only. And Buck always just gave him like the snarkiest answers every single time. Like Buster would be like, oh, you know, what did you think about this? Or, or why did you decide to do this? And Buck would be like, I, where'd you hear that? I, I don't know if I said that. It was highly entertaining. Um, so Toronto and Seattle, I was actually in Toronto for this series. And it was super fun right up until it wasn't, I guess would be the right way to put it. The first game, Luis Castillo, followed by uh, someone who throws harder than Luis Castillo and Andres Munoz, maybe the best pitched game I've ever seen live. Like, I know there's a lot of angst about the Blue Jays lineup not doing much, but Luis Castillo was unbelievable in that game. Hitting the spots, hitting the corners, like movement on his fastball, throwing harder than he ever had. That is exactly why you go out and you pay a high price for Luis Castillo. <laughs> and then the second game, oh man, I was down the left field line um, and when that collision play with show, with um, with George Springer and Bo Bichette happened, the ball was like in slow motion and you could see it like it was five seconds in advance and you're like, no, 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 no. I think there's a lot of questions to be answered for John Schneider about bullpen usage and about why Jackie Bradley Jr. wasn't playing defense. But then I sort of figure if we focus too much on what Toronto didn't do, we sort of ignore what Seattle did. And Seattle went in there and won two games in a row. That's not an easy place to win. For sure. And I think, I mean, I was always skeptical of the Blue Jays' bullpen, which was my concern. That said, when they went up 8-1, I was like, okay, game three, that'll be fun. We'll have another game three on, on Sunday. I mean that is a that's a tough way to lose a game. The decision though, the decision though to bring in Tim Meza to flip Santana around, granted it was still what it was eight one at the time, so it's still it's like it's hard to, but it was it was a strange decision before it happened, and then even looked even worse after the fact. I don't know. I mean I, I'm not the world's biggest Tim Meza fan. Gosman had loaded the bases like he let he let three guys on. Like you can't at least come at me and say, well he was dealing. Okay, I know they weren't all hard hit. I know one, you know, a couple of bloops and everything, but it's not like this guy was mowing them down. I guess, but maybe you have, I mean, have a right-handed pitcher ready for, for the switch hitting Santana? I don't know. It's just like, it felt dicey even in the moment. It was like, hey, but credit, credit to Carlos Santana. Like, hitting home runs is hard. He hit it at the exact right moment to turn, to make the, uh, turn a blowout into a game that they had a chance to come back in. And like... Even I said, you know, the last podcast, I was like, one of the reasons I don't like the Blue, I'm skeptical of the Blue Jays is because I'm skeptical of Jordan Romano. He wasn't like lights out, but I mean, that that bloop double was a total fluke. You know, that's like a, well, they, a play a play the Blue Jays make, you know, you know, a major league team makes 99 out of 100 times or maybe 98 out of 100 times. So it's like, I, I will, I'm not going to, you know, take a victory lap on that one. That was a fluke. Yeah. And they asked him to pitch two innings. Because Anthony Bass could not get a single out, which well, is a big part of it. And then that sort of does go to my point about, I think, the issue with the, their bullpen was that they didn't really have that many guys you could trust. And when you don't have guys you can trust, you end up having to make some weird decisions and put your guys in in spots in the postseason, especially in the postseason, where maybe you're asking them to do more than they're capable of, and that's when you get in trouble. Yeah, and to go back to the Santana thing, his previous plate appearance, he crushed a ball off a of Gosman that was like one foot away from going out. And if it sounds like we're talking too much about the Blue Jays, not about the Mariners, we are, but we have a whole Mariners postseason series to preview in a minute. Finally, the one series that I have to be honest, I watched the absolute least of just because I was in Toronto and a lot of these games are happening at a similar time, um, Cardinals and Phillies. And my big takeaway from this is that when this was the first game, I think, um, 
yeah, the first game where the Phillies got this great comeback and the Cardinals melted down. It was highly ironic to me watching the Cardinals infield defense fail to make the plays because they're supposed to be great and the Phillies obviously have a tremendously bad defense and it, it really felt like uh, the irony scales had tipped entirely back in the other direction here. <laughs> no, no question. And it, I mean, this is one... Even at the time, it felt a little weird. There was the, the, the game-changing play was when they brought the infield in with Segura up. And it was kind of like they just brought in Andre Plante, who gets ground balls. Segura hits a lot of hard ground balls. He's actually not that fast. Um, and it was kind of like they were up by one run. They probably should have a double play depth because at this point, you're probably going to give up the run. He's a contact hitter. And you have to, you basically brought in the ground ball pitcher. And so they brought the infield in. He punches one past the infield, scores two runs. It all falls apart from there. But, I mean, they wouldn't have been able to turn two on the play anyway, so the game would have been tied. And kudos to the Phillies. They executed. I thought, you know, I all year they've sort of had some, you know, the, the joke has been their fundamentals, and it's still something in question. We could talk about that when we preview their Braves series. But they they made the plays they needed to, and then they had an their, their their two ace pitchers Wheeler and Nola pitched very well, and like that was their formula, and it worked out. Yeah, and they had something really interesting going on with their lineup, right? If you looked at their lineup in the two games, and like I don't want to take too much away from two games because it's two games, none of their top hitters actually hit. Schwarber was zero for nine, Hoskins was zero for nine, Romuto was one for eight, Castellanos was zero for eight. So if you take those four. And you had Bryce Harper. So they're big five bats. 42 plate appearances, three hits, four walks, an 0.83 batting average. And it's like, part of me wants to say, well, that's that's terrible. That's that's bad news. And then the other part of me wants to say, they won anyway. <laughs> like, good for them. Like, that's, that's very impressive. Uh, and then obviously, you know, you need a little bit more from those guys, which I don't think is, is too much to ask for. Uh, before we go into the... Uh, each series, I do want to get back to what I was saying before about the schedule differences for the DS, because I think this is really interesting. For the wildcard series, it was three games in three days. Everybody's playing at the same time, no differences. In the National League, there's only one day off for travel. In the American League, there's two days off for travel, right? So the National League plays games one and two on Tuesday and Wednesday, then they have a travel day on Thursday. And then there's no travel day between game four and five. That would have been a thing if it was Dodgers-Mets, but Dodgers-Padres, kind of who cares? Braves-Phillies is not that big a deal. In the American League, they play a Tuesday game one, but they have a day off after game one and also after game two, which makes it less likely you're going to have to start you know, a fourth starter or a fifth starter. It gives you a little more rest for your bullpens, which I think you know for some of these teams is a big deal. And it just it's a different flavor than the wild card where everything was condensed. And I think that's going to be interesting to see how different that one extra day off will be for the American League teams as compared to the National League teams. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back on the Ballpark Dimensions podcast and we're going to look into the two National League series. We're back on the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike Petrail and Matt Myers. We are going to start with the National League. We have two different playoff series coming up in the division series here. The first one we're going to do, the Padres and the Dodgers, and that is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, it occurred to me before, three of the four series that we're going to see are going to have divisional rivals, which is going to be kind of cool. Like, obviously, there's a lot of history between all these teams. And the first thing that stands out to me for Padres-Dodgers here is how are these teams going to fare against velocity? So if you look at pitches over 95 miles an hour this year, the Dodgers hitters were number one by like a lot, like an obscene amount. And the Padres were number 30. They were literally the weakest team in baseball against velocity. 
And while it's true they did just beat the Mets, and the Mets have some high-octane pitchers, that's not really how it went down. Like It's true that Trent Grisham hit a home run off a 100-mile-an-hour Jacob deGrom pitch, but most of their other damage was against Scherzer, who wasn't actually throwing that hard. You know, it was more like 394, and a lot of bendy stuff from relievers. So, you know, the Dodgers don't necessarily have lame throwers in that way either. Like, Kershaw is certainly not that guy anymore. Tyler Anderson is not that guy. So it, it may not be a strength for them, but I do think for their hitters, uh, that's going to be a big deal. Like, that's the first thing I'm going to look at, is who does the best against high velocity, because in the regular season, there was such a big difference between these two teams. The, the I mean, I don't really, really know what to make of the, the Padres offense right now, to be honest with you. I mean, they, they basically, they beat the Mets because they got great production from the bottom of their lineup. I mean, is every year we get one of these guys. Last year was Eddie Rosario. The first series it was Trent Grisham. Sometimes it feels like we do all this analysis and then it doesn't matter because Trent Grisham, I think I saw Tim Britton tweet, he reached base seven times all September and then seven times in, in, uh, in the wild card series against the Mets, including two home runs. So I don't really know what to make of the Padres offense right now. I mean, even last night you have in game three, you've got Juan Soto laying down, essentially laying down sacrifice bunts. I mean, it was like... It was hard, but... <laughs> um, so you have to feel, I mean, it's it's cool. The rivalry's there. I love this. Like, the, I mean, it's going to be, the atmosphere is going to be electric. I don't really know what to get expect from the from the from the Padres in this series. They're going to be starting with Mike Clevenger, who's so who's supposed. I think Clevenger. They said Clevenger starting game one, which is um, not great. He's um, not been effective this year. Hasn't really been an effective pitcher since 2019. I know he had Tommy John surgery, but really, like he hasn't been a, a very good pitcher for about three years now. So you know that the Dodgers are going to be going in with a huge sort of like on paper advantage in game one, coupled with the fact that without like. The good Juan Soto, you can't really rely on Trent Grisham to kind of keep carrying you again, can you? No, probably not. Um, I think it's pretty clear that the lineup has been a weakness. I was thinking through the starting pitchers here. I don't know if I'm going to be able to watch Game 3. So Game 3, uh, Blake Snell is probably going to start. He had six walks against the Mets. The Dodgers have the second highest walk rate and the lowest chase rate. And like Blake Snell is and has been a very good pitcher. But I just don't get enjoyment out of watching him pitch. <laughs> he's like he's always nibbling, so he's going full counts. And then you know it's going to be against the Dodgers, and if he's dealing in the sixth inning, I just I don't know if I've got all those jokes in me based on you know what happened a couple years ago. Did you know it's been 16 years since the last Padres home playoff game? We talk about the Mariners being almost two decades or more than two decades. They haven't played a home game since 2006, which was so long ago. It was against the Cardinals so long ago. That it was a game that actually had Yadier Merlina, Albert Pujols, and Adam Wainwright in it. <laughs> Believe that. Um, but for the Padres, Dave Roberts, David Wells, and Padres legend Mike Piazza played in that game. It's It's been a minute. I think there, it's clear that the Padres are at a disadvantage here, right? Partially just because literally every team would be against the Dodgers. Partially because the Dodgers are well-rested, whereas the Padres obviously have to start Mike Clevenger in Game 1. And I was thinking about the Dodgers pitching staff here, and the first thing we think of is what's limited by injuries, right? Like Walker Buehler's out, Craig Kimbrell hasn't pitched well, Daniel Hudson's out. Uh, We're not sure yet at the time we taped this about Blake Trinan, but he obviously has been pretty limited this year. And then I started looking at the names in the bullpen, and these are not big names. I actually think we're underrating the Dodger bullpen a little bit. Like, let me throw you their names here. Um, Evan Phillips. Nobody knows who that is. He's been fantastic, right? Bruce Dargratterol is like off-brand Emmanuel Classe in some sense. Did you know Chris Martin has the all-time highest strikeout-to-walk ratio in baseball history among guys who've thrown 250 innings? 34 strikeouts and one walk with the Dodgers this year. And then they might get to do like a cool 
piggyback situation in game four between Tony Gonsolin, who's great, Dustin May, who can be great when he's healthy, and Andrew Heaney, who, yeah, home run problems, yes, but strikes out the world. Like, as far as problems go, those are good problems to have, I think. It's 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 strange for it's just strange for a team like the Dodgers. You know, they've got all these stars, they have a huge payroll, and their bullpen is just like an anonymous mix of random dudes, but many of whom are very good. And the Dodgers have obviously done a very good job of of putting together these bullpens without necessarily having these quote unquote household names. Yeah, it's it's. I think a lot of baseball fans are going to be surprised to see some of the names coming in and pitching the high leverage innings. Like, why isn't Craig Kimbrell coming in here? Like, I look, but uh, Evan Phillips has been. I don't want to say as good as any reliever in baseball this year, but he's been you know an elite reliever this year. And Chris Martin, as you mentioned, and Chris Martin has a track record of actually being pretty good. It's just not always been year in and year out. But he's had he's had seasons like this in the past. Yeah, and. and- it should be pointed out for the Padres that Josh Hader, who got off to such a terrible start there, has been much better lately. So I think that's a that's a feather in their cap. I think we are both going to have to pick the Dodgers here, because how could you not? But I'm also trying to remember that you and I both did a pretty lousy job of predictions <laughs> for the wild card, so I'm not sure. I'd, should I just pick the Padres? <laughs> Yeah, I think right. I think I think I was I think I was one for four. Though my one was correct was that I had Padres in three, so I got team and game mm-hmm. right. So there there you go. Yeah. Um, well, here, here's our rule. You can't, we, we can't, gotta have one, uh, we can't have all sweeps. That's what we did last time, right? I think it's easier in a best of five. A best of five. I mean, again, you, you can't predict baseball. Trent Grisham just, just showed us that. If, you know, someone runs into a three run homer in the first inning for the Padres on, on Tuesday night, it changes the complexion of the, the entire series. I do think the Padres are set up pretty well after game one. They do have Darvish, who's been fantastic, full rest in game two. It just, you know, the scale is the, the thumb is really on the scale for the Dodgers in Game One. So you, I always hate to use the 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 word "must win" when it's not actually a must win, and it's certainly not a must win for the Dodgers. But it definitely is a game that will feel like a missed opportunity if they do not win Game One. Dodgers in four. I don't trust the Padres lineup very much. I will give the Padres home crowd. I give give them a little juice, and they'll win some home games. I'll say Dodgers in five. Okay. Uh, the next one here is Phillies Braves. Um, both of these teams actually made a little bit of news today. The Phillies removed the interim tag from Rob Thompson, so he's going to be their manager for the next two years. And the Braves, stop me if you've heard this one before, extended a great young talent, giving a six-year deal to Spencer Strider. The um, the Phillies are really set up around their starting rotation, right? Like their big, their big two horses, Aaron Nola, uh, who was great the other day, and Zach Wheeler. But because of the fact that they had to play that wildcard round they don't get those guys to start two games it's going to be ranger suarez who's actually pretty good in game one wheeler on regular rest in game two nola on extra rest in game three and then if there's a game four uh, cinder guard bailey falter i don't know they they would be hurt by most likely only getting one start apiece from wheeler and nola so I, i think that does put them in a big deficit but i was surprised when i looked this up before so obviously divisional rivals they've played a ton they were only outscored by the Braves by three runs over 19 games this year, which was actually really surprising to me. I thought it would be a much bigger gap, and it wasn't. Um, Ranger Suarez has already faced Atlanta five times this year, and he's done pretty well. A 664 OPS and a 321 ERA. As I said before, the big Phillies bats just did absolutely nothing. It doesn't mean I expect them to continue doing nothing. It's just kind of an interesting, wow, they, that happened and they still won. That's good for them. The, the, the Bryce Harper piece of it is what's interesting to me, because in game one, he really looked bad. Like, he, he had a strikeout against uh, Jose Quintana, where was maybe the worst at-bat I've ever seen Bryce Harper have. His bat looked slow. And then he, he came in against um, 
Ryan Helsley in the in the ninth is when the, they they kind of blew the game when Helsley hurt his finger and he fell behind against Helsley. It looked like he had no chance of catching up to his fastball, and then Helsley couldn't throw a strike and he walked. And it sort of almost looked like teams were kind of like, okay. I was watching that game thinking teams are going to start just attacking this guy until he proves like since Harper came off the IL with that thumb injury, he'd been pretty bad. And I was like, it seems like teams should be challenging him until proven otherwise. He really need. I think I even said to Andrew Simon, our column, I was like, Bryce Harper needs to hit one 440 feet to remind people what he's capable of. So I'll actually start respecting him again. Lo and behold, game two, he hit one 440 feet, which I think if nothing else forces teams to kind of pause a little bit and how they're going to pitch to him and maybe buys him a little bit more time of like a little bit more of the benefit of the doubt because he really didn't look like himself. Um, so I think that's actually a small thing, but it could be a significant thing for, for the, uh, for the Phillies. I mean, at the very least, in addition to Harper, they have Hoskins and Schwarber, two like true actual power hitters who can like turn a game with one swing of the bat. So I think that's one thing where like the Phillies lineup, and in theory, Castellanos is also that guy, but he's just been like so unimpressive this season. It's hard to kind of put him in that bucket. But just the Schwarber, Hoskins, Harper trio, it's like, okay, this is the kinds of guys who are built for the postseason to really turn turn a game. So I think that really plays in the Phillies' favor. I mean, I think what I'm interested to see with the Phillies is how Rob Thompson manages game one. Because as you said, Suarez had some, has had some success against the Braves. But on paper, they're definitely at a disadvantage here with a starting pitching matchup. That said, they know they've got Wheeler and Nola followed up. So maybe he gets really aggressive with his bullpen thinking like, you know what, I've got these guys coming up behind me who are probably going to give me innings. So maybe I can be a little more aggressive with how I use Maybe you have a shorter leash with Suarez early to try and keep the game close if I have to, and uh, my aces can kind of carry me. So I think that's kind of what I'm interested to see in how he uses how he uses Suarez in Game One. You know, I'm interested to see how the Phillies defense uh, matches up against the Braves here. Because if you think about the Braves' offense, uh, we've mentioned this a couple times before, they are not an old-school small ball kind of team. They didn't lay down their first sacrifice bunt to, what, game 161 or 162 of the season. They strike out a lot. They hit a ton of home runs. Like, that's what they do. And so I was thinking about this. Well, if you strike out a lot and you hit the ball over the fence a lot or hit it in the air a lot, then that's not a lot of balls hit to the infield and I think that's true about 50% of their plate appearances end in strikeouts or fly balls or liners but when you look at the defense improvement that the Phillies had and they did it was mostly in the infield right the, the infield got better when they cut Gregorius um, Alec Bohm improved like the defense on the infield is better than it was the defense in the outfield is not much better than it was like I like Marsh in center field he's pretty good but Castellanos is still not good in the corners Schwarber's not that good in the corners and if you look at the September outs above average their infield was plus three. That was actually pretty good. It's 10th best. Uh, Off-field was minus nine. That was worst. And the flip side of the way the offense for the Braves work is that they don't hit a lot of ground balls. They have the seventh lowest ground ball rate. So when they do hit the ball, they're trying to hit it in the air. And it's not that hard to imagine, I don't know, Michael Harris or Swanson or somebody hitting a ball to right field that gets past Castellanos that turns from an out into a double or a single into a triple. And the whole series changing based on that like that's that's pretty easy to see especially compared to Atlanta's outfield defense which is really good I mean Acuna's down a little bit because of the knee but Harris is a fantastic center fielder and that that to me is the biggest edge I think on either side here and the Braves also have while they're not like necessarily like a base stealing team they have athletic guys who can take extra bases and are well positioned to to take to take advantage of that yeah I, I would 
I'd like to see some new blood in the LCS. I feel like I've watched a Dodgers-Braves LCS a lot the last few years, so, like, it'd be cool to see some different teams in there. Um, but, I mean, I think I think I said this on the podcast last week. I think right now, given some of the uncertainties about the Dodgers pitching staff, I think the Braves have the best roster in baseball, especially with a, health, a healthy – if they have a healthy strider. So I can't really pick against the Braves here, right? So it's just like the Phillies could win. Hey, anything can happen. But, like, it's hard to see – it's hard to see it. But then again, maybe this Nola Wheeler thing is kind of like a, a new age uh, Schilling Johnson kind of thing. I think I just realized I'm going to end up predicting a Dodgers Braves LCS for the right to face the Astros. I don't know if that sounds familiar to anybody. And I, it's not necessarily what I want to happen. Like what my heart says, and this makes me a coastal elite or whatever, I want to see Dodgers Yankees. We haven't seen it in 40 plus years, but that's not what I'm going to pick. I think I don't see a way you can pick against the Braves here. I think the Braves have everything going the right direction. Their their rotation is lined up better. They sound pretty hopeful that Spencer Strider will make an appearance here. I don't know if it'll be game three. I don't know if it'll be game four. I don't know if it'll be out of the bullpen, but it sounds like he's going to be available. And remember, they're going to start Max Freed and Kyle Wright in the first two games. And if it was Freed and Wright versus Wheeler and Nola, I think I'd call that even, I guess, but it's not. It's Freed and Wright versus Suarez and Wheeler. And then obviously, you know, Nola versus Morton, I would take Nola. But uh, the Braves have a huge defensive advantage. I like their lineup better. I like their rotation better. And I'll, I'll give the Phillies credit that the bullpen's been better than I expected it would be. I'm going to, I guess I I guess I got to pick a sweep. Braves in three. I regret this already. I think if they have Strider in game four, it's a no, it's a no-brainer. Like, I mean, it's obvious, but it might be you not know, even get that far. As an aside, can I, can I ask you a question about the um I want to get your take on the Strider deal because like I think it's I mean, like the Braves have obviously done a very good job of locking up their players. And I think there's I don't think there's a ton of risk here, given that like it's um Risk from what side? From the player side or from, the team from, side? Because he, team side, he like, could I, potentially be leaving money on the table. That's, that's yeah. I think I think that like the and also like he is a like a short right hander who throws like a hundred and throws a ton of sliders. Like he is the the sort of the classic injury risk kind of guy. I, I mean like this. I feel like people are looping this in with all their other deals. And like I get why the Braves did it. Don't get me wrong. And I don't think that like there's huge downside for them. But I also think that this is like this has this isn't the same upside as like the um, Michael Harris deal or even the Austin Riley deal, because they're only really getting one year of his free agency and he's a pretty big injury risk. What's your what's your take on this one? He he has I'm pretty sure already had a Tommy John surgery, so there's one. The, you know the name I keep coming back to here is uh, Mike Soroka, who looked it was never as dominant as Spencer Strider. It's a very different kind of pitcher, obviously. Um, but he has had so many repeated injuries that he hasn't really pitched in, what, three seasons now? And I bring that up because if you're a young pitcher like Spencer Strider, you see this money being put in front of you. I, I don't know how anybody could judge him for taking it. Like, for him, it's like a no-brainer because Mike Soroka probably does not ever get that contract now. No, I I think it may, it's a no-brainer for him. I mean, I think the whole thing is interesting for a variety of reasons. I think it's more like the Braves. They have him for six years no matter what, and he's not even going to make arbitration eligible for a couple more years. It's almost more surprising the Braves would offer this. It's also interesting to me, and this is a whole other topic that maybe we should have Mark Feinstein to talk about. It's like the Braves can't be the only team that is offering players these deals, and yet they're the only team where the players seem to constantly be taking them. So I think there's an interesting story there. I mean, if Strider, as I said, if he is back and he's healthy, I think the Braves have the best roster. I will say Braves in four. Yeah, I, I already regret saying three, but I kind of wanted to push myself to pick a sweep. So that's what I said. The, the interesting thing, too, about that deal is like they keep signing these young guys, but Freddie Freeman left. 
Dansby Swanson is unsigned. He'll be a free agent in a couple weeks. Max Fried is, uh, I think, two more years of arbitration before he hits free agency. So it's not like they're retaining everybody. You know, like there are still some big pieces. If, if Swanson departs this year, who plays shortstop next year? It's an open question. We'll take a quick break. And we're going to come back and talk about the two American League series. We are back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike Petriello and Matt Myers. We're going to start previewing the two American League Division Series. Most interesting one to me is clearly the Mariners and the Astros. The Mariners are finally going to get that home playoff game. That's going to be super interesting. I actually kind of want to start with the Astros real quick because I thought a huge edge for them was going to be in their starting rotation. Not that the Mariners don't have a good rotation. They do. But you sort of figured, okay, the Astros would start Verlander and Framber Valdez and Lance McCullers Jr., and then a couple minutes ago, Brian McTaggart reported, Dusty Baker said he's not ready to announce his rotation yet. He said some sickness is going around. I don't know what that means. I'm not going to speculate on it. But if all of a sudden the Astros don't have that rested, lined-up rotation, it's it throws a wrench into things a little bit. Now, the one thing they do have going for them is that they already had too many starting pitchers. They were going to have to throw Luis Garcia, Christian Javier, and Jose Urquidy into the bullpen bullpen which already had ryan presley and ryan stanick and hector norris and rafael montero so if for some reason any of these guys have to be pushed back or can't go or whatever i mean it's not like they don't have options it's not like they're gonna have to bullpen it or go with their fifth starter like they have an embarrassment of riches here it's just it's an interesting wrinkle that you wouldn't have expected like at this late date it definitely it you know adds a level of uncertainty and anytime there's uncertainty that benefits the underdog and so um, I think there might be the 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 Mariners I think are going to become the team of of neutrals the the bandwagon is going to be filling up of uh, team that hasn't been there in a while they've always been kind of a fun team had a lot of stars and the team of Ken Griffey there's always like a national I think connection to that team of Ichiro connection to that team to begin with so. Now it's like, okay, you know, who knows what's going to happen with this, the pitching. Obviously, the vibes right now with the, the Mariners are immaculate. And, I mean, on paper, obviously, the, the Astros are the big favorite. But, you know, I guess it, well, let's see if, I mean, if, it's, if, it's, if you get Verlander in game one, I feel like that's kind of like, okay. Again, it kind of goes back to where it took with the other teams. There's a huge advantage, right? This is, where the, this is where winning the division and the rest comes into play. You get your ace. The Mariners are not going to have Luis Castillo for game one, and they won't get him until game— I guess they won't get him to game two in the way it's set up because the off days, I guess he'd only get to pitch one game in the series anyway, right? Oh, well, he would pitch in game two, and then—no, he could pitch in game five if they needed to go that far, I think. All right, I guess but it would be short rest? No, there's two off days here, right? So your game one starter can come back on regular rest in game four, Right. And then your game two starter, I guess it might be short rest because you have yeah, the day off, you have game four. Okay. Yeah, it's, 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 it's funny. Use. Yeah, but if he had been able to pitch in game, but hey, regardless, it um, it um, it obviously favors you know, it favors Houston being able to get Verlander twice in the series, assuming he can he can actually pitch. You know, you, you did like a position by position analysis of this series for for the site, and I think you know obviously the Astros have a lot of of advantages that really that really stand out. One that stood out to me that you pointed out was. How poorly our defensive metrics rate um, J.P. Crawford at shortstop, particularly when compared to um, Jeremy Pena on the other side, which I don't think I fully realize the extent to how Crawford rated as one of the worst shortstops in baseball this year. I can tell you that Mariners fans don't necessarily agree with that, but that's 
that's the way the numbers came out. And Crawford's fine. A league average hitter who can play shortstop is, is a valuable guy, but the defensive metrics just don't think that highly of him. And, you know, Pena, I think, was like the early season front runner for rookie of the year for a while. Obviously, he got hurt. His bat declined. He got surpassed by Rodriguez and Stephen Kwan and Adley Rutschman and, you know, George Kirby and a whole bunch of other guys. Uh, but I, when I was thinking about, you know, the thing that stood out to me when I was writing that is I don't think I realized just how good a year Jose Altuve had. Like, I sort of was thinking of in my head as like, oh, he's kind of post-peak now. And I don't know if that's just because he's getting older or because the short in 2020 was kind of a mess or just because he doesn't hit 340 anymore because nobody hits 340 anymore. He had tied for the best OPS plus of his entire career this year, right? 28 homers, a 160 OPS plus without getting into the whole everything of 2017 at this exact moment in time. He's going to have a pretty good Hall of Fame case someday, which I think is going to be really interesting. And I just, I don't, you know, I didn't perceive him as still being that kind of superstar, but I mean, he really is. Like, he's still a huge difference maker. Yeah, everything, I think just everything because of the whole sign stealing saga. It's just sort of a lot of people just sort of cast, you know, cast a cloud over it. And people kind of, he's become kind of, he's gone from being a darling to a little bit of an afterthought, but he's still. He's still a superstar, and that lineup is it's 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 much deeper than the Mariners lineup. The Mariners right now, I mean, they 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 won the series, so it kind of went unnoticed. But like Julio Rodriguez didn't really do much of anything, and they really kind of need him to be a star because they they're not really they don't really have that that class of player otherwise. You know, obviously Ty France is underrated. Cal Raleigh's you know. The big dumper. The big dumper hits for a lot of power. <laughs> that's about it. But otherwise, that lineup, you know, Jared Kelnick struggling again. It's like, where are they going to get that superstar production? They really need it from Julio. And since he's come back from the back injury, there's still some questions of, like, you know, who is he right now? And he obviously could put those to rest if he, you know, has a big game in game one. But I feel like that's kind of, you know, sometimes you need your stars to, to play like stars. And I really feel like in this series, the Mariners, more so than ever, just given where the, the rest of their lineup stands, that, like, the, the, the spotlight's on Rodriguez. I agree with that totally. My my biggest prediction for this series is that Eugenio Suarez is going to dump at least one home run into the short porch <laughs> in left field. Because if you remember the way he was in Cincinnati, that's not to say he wasn't a good power hitter. He was. But he was the king of taking advantage of Cincinnati's ballpark out there. The other thing, too, with the bullpens here, and obviously this depends, I guess, on what happens with the Astros rotation. They're both pretty well rested just in the sense of if you look at August and September combined, they were the two bullpens who had to throw the least innings because the starting pitching had been so good. And even though you're right, Castillo can't start till game two, having to start Logan Gilbert in game one is not exactly a problem. On the other hand, he's not Justin Verlander. He is not living Cooperstown legend Justin Verlander. Obviously, I'm picking the Astros here. I get it. The Mariners have the great story, the great fans, the, the game, at least one game they'll get in Seattle is going to be incredibly cool. Mm, Astros and four. I mean... I'll get into some mild speculation here, which may be maybe rendered moot by the by the time everyone listens to this. But if if Dusty's not even able to commit to to Verlander in Game One, that could change everything. I mean, you have the you as you pointed out in this in our little podcast document here, Verlander faced Seattle six times this year, forty three strikeouts, six walks, a lot of five ninety nine OPS. Verlander, this is my, might be my favorite stat of the season. In three of his last six starts, has left the game with zero hits allowed. He's been taken out of. A no hit with a no hitter going in three of his last six starts. Um, so assuming it's Verlander, normal Verlander, yeah, I, I, I'm going to take the Astros in four. What if when Mick Haggard said that Dusty said there's some sickness going around, he was just talking about watching highlights of the Astros rotation? He's watching Frambersville. It's like wow, that's that's like I, I would be I would be a lot more worried if this was like the Phillies and they're like, oh, I don't know if our guys are going to be healthy because they don't have depth. 
the Astros absolutely have depth. So I'm with you on that. All right, here's our final one. And I, I promise this is going to be one I'm going to pick in five just because I like diversity of predictions that I'll end up being wrong. Guardians and Yankees. And this one is going to be really different, I think, for Cleveland than the Tampa Bay one was just because the Rays are a very different team than the Yankees were. Uh, Cleveland is going to start Cal Quantrill in game one. I do not like this lineup, this matchup for Cleveland at all because Quantrill... There are things to like about him. You know, he's reliable. Uh, there were 62 pitchers that threw 150 innings this year, and he had the fourth lowest strikeout rate. And you're going to put him in Yankee Stadium, and you're going to say, well, now I'm pretty sure the Yankees are going to be able to get bat on ball. I don't I don't love that a lot. Now, obviously, Bieber's great. McKenzie is very good, and the bullpen is fantastic, although I would note that Nick Sandlin, who's kind of an under-the-radar guy, he got hurt in the Tampa Bay series. He's out for, I believe, the rest of the playoffs, but at the very least, this series. And he is a right-handed killer. In his career, righties have hit 168, 282, 246 against him. 246! A slugging percentage of 246. That is the guy you want against Aaron Judge. He's not there anymore. It's not like they don't have other good relievers, you know, James Karinchek and Emmanuel Classe and on and on and on. But that's a big blow to them. Uh, the one thing working in their favor is that after that 15-inning game, they have had two full days of rest. So, like, the bullpen should be at mostly full strength. But I think they're going to need it because I don't really expect Cal Quantrill to go deep in the first game here. This it sort of reminds me a little bit of that, um, what, you know, basically the same thing I was saying about the um, the Dodgers-Padres. It's like the, 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 the Yankees really have, like— the edge in game one is, is is significant, and it's it's if the Yankees win that game, I feel like they will go on to win the series. But um, there's one thing about these two teams that's the Yankees, obviously, partially because of Judge and also because of Stanton and a couple of like they they obviously hit for a lot more power than the Guardians do. But in one similar like there's a similarity to these teams in that like the bottom of the lineups are both pretty uninspiring. Like the Yankees lineup falls off pretty starkly once you get down to like seven, eight, nine, similar to the Guardians. I mean, the Guardians barely, I mean, have a couple guys who are barely MLB, you know, like below replacement level hitters in Straw and Austin Hedges, which is like probably is, is a big problem in, in and of itself. But it's not like the Yankees with Isaiah kiner falefa and Jose Trevino. It's like it's not like they're they, – they've got superstar hitters at the bottom of their lineup either. So I think that like I'm very curious to see how much Aaron Judge actually gets to hit. We joked about this in the regular season of like – you know, why is anyone pitching this guy? Well, now it's the playoffs, and, like, you really can't let Aaron Judge beat you when you're probably going to be playing a bunch of bunch of low-scoring games. Yeah, intentional walks are usually a bad idea. Like, they, they aren't great, but in this specific scenario, I mean, at the very least, he better be seeing, like, change-ups and breaking balls in the dirt if you don't actually want to, like, give him the four. I cannot imagine anybody on this team, even Bieber, like Bieber's not a fastball guy necessarily, right? You're not throwing him fastballs down the pipe, or at least you shouldn't be. But like this whole matchup is going to be viewed as more of like a stylistic war. The Yankees have the most home runs, the Guardians are the second fewest. You know, like that's where it's going to come back to. The Guardians actually struck out a ton in that series against Tampa Bay, like I said before. Uh, you know, the Yankees have had a little bit of drama too with the whole the Roldis Chapman situation who he's not going to be on the roster. Uh, he didn't show up for a bullpen session, and they basically told him to go home. So he's not going to be available. And if you look at the Yankee bullpen, which has been a strength all year, well, Chad has out. Chad Green's out for the year. Mike King is out for the year. Ron Marinaccio got hurt. He's out for this series, at least. Clay Holmes sounds like he'll be available, but you know he's been dealing with some arm stuff. So it's like your top relievers right now are... Jonathan Lysaga, Scott Efros, Wandy Peralta, Lou Trevino. Like, there there are guys I like there. Uh, Tyone will be available too, but that's not the same group of guys we saw before. 
I mean, this is where Cleveland can win the series, is there. It's like the, the Yankees don't, with especially with the compromised homes, or at least presumably somewhat compromised, not like Clay Holmes of June where he looked like the best reliever in baseball. Um, they don't have a pitcher, a reliever, where we were like, oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? This guy's warming up. We're done. Like they, they, The Guardians, this is a place, I think, where the Guardians can do, can, can do damage. It's actually it almost in a weird way it goes back. To, it used to be in the postseason the idea was like, okay, let's – Let's get the starting pitcher out of the game and get to the, those those middle relievers. And baseball kind of shifted where teams got smart and they kind of were like, okay, actually, we're not going to let starting pitchers face you three times through the order and we're going to go to our bullpen. This is a series where if I'm Cleveland, I'm like, you know what, actually, I, you know, I, I want to see the bullpen as soon as I can. Unlike some other teams, it's like I want to see the bullpen as soon as I can because I think we could probably score score off these guys. I'm very interested to see if the Yankees can rewrite the terrible trade narrative of the Jordan Montgomery trade. Because Montgomery went to St. Louis and he was great. Bader was hurt and he barely played for the Yankees. And now St. Louis is out of the playoffs. Montgomery pitched, I think, two and two-thirds innings just in relief. But he he wouldn't have started over Cole, Cortez, Severino. Might have started over Tyone as a fourth starter. Hard to say for sure. And all it's going to take is one really good defensive play from Harrison Bader in center field, which if it, this is a good matchup for it, right? Because Cleveland puts the ball in play a ton. They don't go over the fence, right? They don't strike out. There's balls in play. The, Yankee, the Yankees put a lot of effort into upgrading their defense, which they've done. This is the one I'm going to take in five, and I'm going to take the Yankees, but I think it's going to be close. This is not going to be easy. Um, I'm, I'm taking the Guardians. I think Guardians in okay. five. I think for the reasons I mentioned, I think the the bullpen issues of the Yankees will, will rear their head. And the fact that they don't, I mean, that yes, they have the best hitter in baseball, but after that, no one who has been so good that you feel like is, um, is that 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 really that really scares you, you know. And I think if there's this is this is the one that I feel like has the best chance for an upset for all those reasons. Yeah, I think I just realized I picked the chalk. I think I picked all four top seeds. And for entertainment purposes only, I regret picking all four top seeds. <laughs> I mean, I do think that though this speaks to, I mean, the, the format, this is showing, you know, this is, I mean, at least the way we're discussing this, you know, now let's go watch four wildcard teams advance the LCS. But the way we're discussing this, you're seeing how the way it's set up is how it was kind of designed, right? We're winning the division, you get the rest, you get to line up, you guarantee your your number one starter against a team's third or fourth starter. And that's what we're seeing. It's all, and so like, you look at these games, all these games on ones on paper, Yankees, Cole versus Quantrill, huge edge. You know, Mariners. Um, Verlander, potentially. Verlander versus, Gil- Ver- Verlander versus, versus, I guess, Gilbert, big edge. Freed versus Suarez, big edge. Uh, Urias versus Mike Clevenger, huge edge. Like this is this is the idea of like okay, you win the division, you get this, you basically get 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 this big advantage in game one. Yeah, I'm with you on that, and that that kind of goes back to something we didn't really talk about that much. It was just like you know you think about how the Mets won all these games and their series ends in basically 72 hours, and is that fair or not? Well, their series the season kind of ended last week when they went down to Atlanta and they got swept. And that's why they're playing the series in the first place. They're, the Braves could not lose a series that they were not part of. This is basically what happened. <laughs> exactly. And that's it right there. And so when you're division, that's the, that's the argument. That will do it for this week's podcast. Don't forget that Mandy and Sire will be back in a couple of days. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show, have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimension Podcast. See you next week.